Now more than ever, the industry that fuels the world needs the right people to modernize and unify a global energy platform. The transformation is both digital and cultural. Join us as we explore strategies for success in the hyper-competitive war for talent here on the Energy Workforce of Tomorrow podcast, hosted by the IBM North American Oil and Gas Team. Hello and welcome to another Energy Workforce for Tomorrow podcast. This is Neil Syme, the lead account partner for Shell for IBM, and I'm here with my co-host Jason Duff. How's it going, Jason? It's good. It's a little bit better than what happened in March and April. I was kind of out for a little bit when a doctor decided to have a go at me. We all know you were faking, man. You're all over faking. I know there's a bit of a split down your middle now, but you know what? That was just, that's makeup. We know that's makeup. You took a couple of months off. That's all. I think a couple of people have seen too many of the pictures of me with my, yeah, slit down the middle of injury. my stomach, unfortunately, injury. my injury. Yeah. But I'm back, I saw back and life. running. It's gruesome. So. <laughs> so, so Neil, we're not here to talk about fishing and football and things like that, or being brothers in Scotland. Who have we brought in today? We I hear we've got brought, a president. We have a president, and it is a great honour. President Monte Hoffman, please tell us all about yourself. Introduce yourself. Hey, Monte. Hi, I'm Monty Hoffman. I'm the president of Safford Exploration, which is a great big company of two people. And we do exploration work <laughs> in the United States, Canada, and frankly, consulting all over the world from time to time. I've been as far south as Tierra del Fuego and as far north as Edmonton, Alberta. So I've seen quite a bit of the America as I've been looking at it. Um, we Very good. And sorry, I was just going to say, we believe, though, just before you dive into that, as you do have your first lady as president sitting in the room with you as well. So I hope she's not kicking you under the table if you get anything wrong. <laughs> we also have the family dog, so he can take care of that business. Ah. Fantastic. Fantastic. Sorry, Monty, I didn't mean to interrupt. Tell us that's, all about yourself. That's okay. I have worked for a major oil company, Chevron, for 13 years and have been on my own for about 35 years now and doing predominantly exploration projects. I've evolved from doing sort of the standard type of exploration work into spending my time trying to understand, I guess you'd say micro exploration. How does fluid flow work in oil and gas reservoirs or anything that has more than one phase in it? And do we really understand what's going on? And the answer is no. And so there's a tremendous opportunity, both from a scientific discovery standpoint, but also an economic standpoint. So that's what I've been working on. What's the big difference, Monty, you've seen? I mean, think you said you Shell 1975 and then Chevron 77 onwards. If you, I mean, not to go through everything because there's a lot of different changes. What do you think the major changes have been on the geology side from your perspective? We have denser data. We have a lot more computing power to analyze that data. We're still not real good at integrating different pieces together. Particularly, there's a sort of a boundary between the science and the engineering side. And we don't think alike, we don't analyze data the same way, and we don't sometimes integrate things together the way we ought to. 
that's been going on from the beginning of the industry, and it certainly hasn't changed. And that's something that really needs to be looked at. Okay. And, but where do you think there's maybe been some places where there have been improvements, maybe, or where there are places where you've seen some big changes, but maybe you would say they're not for the better because they're missing a trick on some of the good old ways? The one thing that I really see as a problem is the cycle time of the things we're working on and matching that up with how often you moving or people move around. In an exploration project, that's probably about a three-year cycle time. And if you're reorganizing your company every 18 months, you never get there because you continually short-circuit. It's the old command and control interdiction problem that people try and do in wars. And we've done that to ourselves a lot of times. (laughs) And the ability of long-term people to mentor younger people, it's not nearly as easy to do as it was, you know, 40 years ago. I came into the business, most of the people who'd been there had been there 25 or 30 years, and they got out of the service in World War II, went to college, integrated into the business, and worked for those guys full-time for their whole career. And that doesn't happen anymore. And they had tremendous insights and tremendous abilities and corporate memory that they could pass on to those of us who came in and went to work for them. I don't see that happening as much anymore. Why do you think that is, Monty? Do you think there's a specific reason or is it just that people are no longer in the same job for as long or is it that that culture has changed any? I think it's a little of both, but predominantly it's that people move more and companies make less effort to retain people. And so they don't have that flow of information and ideas that they had before. And it really is amazing how that really does help when you're trying to get something that's a long-term project done. You know, we typically spend three to five years getting things from an idea to a bit in the ground to deciding whether we have a discovery or not. And then another probably four or five years, particularly if we're not lower 48 on shore, designing the completion and production facilities and then getting the, the operations going. And if you're rotating people every 18 months, you lose a lot. And I think that has really happened a lot in the business. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think today, Monty, what we're seeing between Neil and I, are people are probably in jobs between two to four years, Neil, would you say? Yeah, about that. You know, well, that's the thing. I think it's really split. I think you get some people who really do move in dynamic, typically the younger workforce, but not always. And then you've got some of the people like, if I look at, well, Shell, which is my most obvious area, there's so many people there that have been for 20 years, right? There really isn't that level of movement. I think what we're seeing is that led to Monty's point. I think we're seeing a lot more people move quick, more often. Agreed. But especially in oil and gas, it's actually because having I've worked in a few industries and it's actually still relatively sticky, but it's not quite as, you know, it's definitely, since from what I've heard in the day, it's definitely moved on and people are moving on. I've speaking to one of our colleagues today that's moving on and that's all great, right? Great for them to get a new opportunity. Fantastic. But it does mean that we lose a lot of the continuity of knowledge, which is a real problem. And so Monty, what are you seeing in terms of, because the one great thing you have over these years is that experience, that knowledge base, some of that where the data hasn't been held, perhaps. How is that 
something that the industry can actually learn from and try and adjust and make sure that we don't lose some of your experience going forward? I think that there needs to be more opportunity to disperse ideas and information. Publications are fairly limited, particularly on the geologic side, and frankly, not well circulated and not well read anymore. So I think we need to look at other ways and It's kind of why I'm here on a podcast. There need to be some opportunities for people to discuss some new ideas, technical ideas, in an environment that's a little less formal, a little less, you know, okay, we publish this, we put it on the shelf, and maybe we'll come back and read it in five years. So something more dynamic, I guess, is the word I was looking for. And perhaps more accessible, right? It's the accessibility to the future of generations. I mean, this podcast is called Energy Workforce for Tomorrow. But if we can't learn from the past, they're just going to be walking in the dark. They're just going to be walking in the dark. So, Monty, just another question on top of that one, though. We're clearly struggling now where we've got the industry's got a bad name, dirty industry. It's difficult to now get the right skills, be it digital, be it engineering, and you could say it's political, it's the news, but we're struggling to get them in now. Has that always been the case, Monty? I mean, was it much more of a... How did you join in 1977 or 75 in Shell? Were you, you know, was it marketed a lot more or did you just stumble into the industry? What was your you and your I, wife's entry point? I am a small town boy from the West who loved being outdoors. And oh, by the way, there were a lot of rocks there. And this was an opportunity to do something like that. (laughs) My undergraduate school was Northern Arizona University, which was 60 miles from the Grand Canyon. So I was able to integrate that desire to be outdoors with something that I was working on. And so that was helpful. I started out actually as a double science major, geology and chemistry. And the lab time was eating me alive. There was no way I was going to get out in four four years with all the labs I was going to have to take. So in 1973, this thing happened called the Arab oil embargo. And all of a sudden, everybody was knocking on the geology department's door and saying, can we interview your people? I happened to be the right place at the right time. And so when I graduated in 1975... I had several opportunities to go to work for major oil companies as a summer hire. And so I took Shell because they were a good company for one thing. And two, frankly, I want to go see whether I could live in Houston, Texas or not. After that, all I'll say is the next summer I worked for Chevron in Denver. And then full time in 77, I went to work for Chevron in Denver. So that's kind of how I got into it. I think there's less of that approach to it now, but the industry really needed people. And so they were actively recruiting science, physics, geology people, and they were hiring hundreds of people a year. The government was on our side instead of against us at the time, because they were saying, you know, we need energy independence. We need to find some more oil and gas in the United States so that we are at the mercy of OPEC. It feels like that the oil and gas and the energy industry in general still has that need, right? There's still a huge need, especially for skilled resources like yourself and geology and so forth. Some of those are not going away. 
it doesn't quite have the same cachet, I think, right now. And partly because there are some rival industries, perhaps, but I just can't place my finger on it. I don't know what you think, Jason, but it's certainly something I've seen. I think the other thing is what we're seeing, of course, is the digital technology boom that's requirements within their case means you can't just be a geologist or an engineer. You've got to have that digital overlay as well, which is maybe putting some people off as well. So I don't know. I don't know, Jason. It's, it's a tough one, isn't it? It's kind of working out where we, you know, why is the case? I mean, how easy was it, Monty, in those days to get people to work in the industry? Was it very easy to find the right people? Was it just abundant of people want to join the industry? Yes. Qualified people, not so much. You know, it's still a complex business. It's integrating science, a lot of different types of science with engineering. You're making very expensive decisions. The things you do cost a lot of money to do, so you want to have very qualified people doing it. So both my wife and I helped with recruiting. She is a graduate of Texas A&M as a, in her graduate degree. And so she would go down there and interview. And I interviewed at the University of Wyoming where I got my graduate degree. And we might talk to 50 or 60 people a year and hire five as at each of those institutions. So there were a lot of people around trying to get in and we could be fairly selective. So to a large extent, we got good people people who could do the work, both the digital and the scientific or engineering work. So come on then, Monty, be honest. Do you think the quality of people coming into the industry has <laughs> differed any in your, like the base quality or what's your opinion? Maybe you think it's went up. What's your honest opinion? Well, you know, I think again, I know. <laughs> I know what he's going to say. <laughs> no, I'll be frank. I just spent some time in Houston with some, you know, professionals that were much younger than I was, who could bury me in the digital side of the business. Their ability to access data, their ability to analyze data digitally was much beyond mine. What I brought to the table is you need to look at this well that was drilled back in 1964 because this is what's in it. How do I know that? Because I looked at that in 1975 and saw something there. And of course, they haven't done that type of work. They've, so if you can integrate experience with new techniques, I think you can really put together some great teams. But everybody has to know what they're good at and what they need help with. And so, Monty, that was going to be my next question around. So I think the terminology is knowledge drain, right? So we're going to lose that from you whenever you decide to hang up your, I'm trying to think of a geology instrument. Rock hammer. Rock hammer. There. Thank you so much. Jeez. It's been a while since I learned it at school. (laughs) (laughs) So once you hang up your rock hammer, that is going to be lost for the industry for good, right? That's the concerning bit. They're not going to know about those things that were happening back in 1975 or 77 or wherever, where you know there is potentially oil there, but they just didn't have the means to get to them yet. But they may do now. So how does the industry take advantage of your knowledge, your understanding, and harness it now so it's not lost forever. Yeah. What I've realized is... If he's got an answer to that one, he's going to make a lot of money. <laughs> if, if Monty's got a lot of... If he's got an answer to this one, we're going to stop the recording. We're going to make lots of money with Monty. That's right. Maybe we stop the recording and we talk ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, no, really. Well, so give us your opinion on possible options. You're not going to have the answer. I realize that, Monty. But. It's interesting that 
as I started working on this, I really didn't understand a lot about how we all think and how we pass along our knowledge to each other. I thought, oh, I've got a great idea here. I'll just do the math, figure out how it works and publish it. And everybody go, yay, great. What a good thing. That's not how it works. And if you go back and look at Thomas Kuhn's structure of scientific revolutions, the point he makes is there's a tremendous resistance to new ideas. And in fact, if you do something like I've done, typically that work doesn't get recognized by the generation you work with. It gets recognized by the next generation because the people that you have worked with have been integrated into a different situation. So that's something I've been looking at is how do I get things well-known and passed on to the next generation so that it gets implemented. And frankly, in this business, it's results. And you have to be able to take an idea and turn it into a technology that results in success and economic success. And then people will pay attention. You know, you look at horizontal drilling and fracking. People were horizontal drilling back in the 40s. Yeah. Yeah. And it went away, predominantly because of acid and fracking. They didn't need to drill the horizontal wells. And so then reintegrating that back into took a generation. And the next generation looked at it and said, hey, we can do something different with this. And out of that came an understanding. But even then, once they started figuring that out, then they had to figure out, how do you really exploit those types of reservoirs? And we all hear about George Mitchell and Mitchell Energy. (laughs) But he really, there were several people I worked with at Chevron who had kind of a specialized reservoir group that were working on this for a lot of years before they went over and went to work for George. And they had the support of a production vice president. And guess what? He retired. And so as that project started to go away, those guys went to George Mitchell's office. Bang. Bang. And so here's a guy you can interview sometime, Kent Bowker, because he was a part of that. And Kent's a very articulate guy. But that type of thing, you've got to get it. You know, Monty, I think that's... Go ahead. No, I was going to say, I can see it myself as well. Even I started in the industry around the 90s, and it's always been the problem. And again, Neil, you and I spoke about that. It's this circular, closing the circle. It's great to come up with ideas, what the problem statements are, find an idea, solution it. We never, ever, as an industry, can go back and just... There's a bit of this circle, the last third of, how do we throw it back in? What do we learn from? It's always been the problem. And I think a lot of it's very specialist. I think some of it has been in the past been, how do we, there's technology missing, what do we do? But we've got technology now, but then where's the data as we talked about? And then there's people leaving because we haven't really looked at spreading the knowledge. For me, Neil, it's a big thing that I think Monty's saying that I think I've experienced in this industry all the way through. It almost feels like we have to reinvent in a lot of the things in the business units. You're correct. Yeah. So... And it's probably a little bit about human nature, right? People are talking a bit about just understanding that they want to do it their own way. And so they feel they know what to do and they don't look to learn. And yeah. it's so it's not just technology for me, it's culture, but it's about. So what I'm encouraged to hear, Monty, is that you are working with some people, 
you know, in the Houston area right now, trying to work on solutions that are new and exciting because they've recognized that they need that experience. How has that experience of your recent working with these guys been? How is it? Have you seen that type of understanding and appreciation? You know, yes and no. There are select people that will listen and work with. And there are a lot that they already know. They don't have to learn anything from you. They already know how to do that. And it's particularly hard getting across that different profession gap if you're talking to somebody who's not a scientist but is something else. They don't always know how to integrate what you're talking into into their what they're doing. But, you know, the group I'm working with in Houston, it's been a 15-year conversation. And that doesn't happen very often. One gentleman has said, you know, this is something we need to do. And I've said, then I will keep talking to you and not, you know, get upset every time we get close and maybe the price of oil goes from $70 to $7 and they go, well, we're done with that. You know, I go, okay, I'll talk to you when it gets back to 70. And that doesn't happen very often in this business (laughs) either. So I've worked from that standpoint, but also I've worked with smaller companies and learned a lot and had some successes, which has kept things going. The hard part there, again, is maintaining or being in a situation where you can actually get done what needs to be done. Because quite often in smaller organizations, the turf wars are a lot more personal than they are in a big organization. And you just don't do somebody else's job, even though you need to. And so I've run into that problem, too. Monty, how would you coach a young 22, 23-year-old Monty Hoffman coming in today's world? What, yeah. would, your, what would your coaching age. be? Hey, yeah, Neil's age. <laughs> Divide by two, my brother. No, that's... How would... <laughs> it's better than three. But how would you coach Monty? I... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there we go. Almost about closer, Monty. <laughs> Joking apart, how would you mentor and coach a young Monty Hoffman coming into the industry now as a geologist? What would your advice be? Work on as many different things as you possibly can. One of the great things working at Chevron was the first six years were spent in different things. Even though I hired on as a geologist, I spent two years as an exploration geologist, two years as a production geologist, and two years as a geophysicist in that first six years. And so I could then integrate back and forth between those. And in the process also, when I was in geophysics, I got to work with the data nerds huh? and the processing people, the IT people very closely. And I got to understand how they thought. When I was in production geology, I worked very closely with the engineers and I got to understand how they thought. And so we have a tendency to look at the other guy and say, well, you think just like I do, but they don't. And so if you can work across a broad range of different types of things and spend time with different types of people in terms of their education, their professional backgrounds, but also what you find out is certain professions, certain people think certain ways, and you need to understand what that is so you know how to integrate with it. I think that's probably the best advice I can give. Is And yet the world is trying to get us to specialize, right? Yes. That's very limiting when you're trying to do something that is very broad in its uh, application. Do you think then, as an industry, we need to advertise more 
I mean, we've got this label just now as a you know dirty industry, and like I said, a young Monty Hoffman coming through is going to be pulled in other directions into other industries, either distribution or more energy. Although you could say oil and gas and energy, but do you think we need to do a better job of taking people like Neil, you and I, out and really, you know, trying to show the real image of oil and gas and you know, we're going to need oil and gas for a number of years going forward and stop some of this sort of news media sort of data that, hey, we're all going to stop drilling and sort of get become clean. I'm just, I'm interested in how do we change our industry? You know, it's, you obviously, you look at the math, there's no way we're going away, no matter how bad. Totally some, agree. Some people would like to think that we're going to just get rid of fossil fuels for in well, 2030, 2035, 2050, I mean, all of the numbers that people pull out, none of them work. So I think that's the first thing you need to do. And I think you're starting to hear more and more of that. But there's still, there really is a filter. And it's difficult to penetrate with that type of talk because it's not what certain people want to hear. The good news is there's a lot of different avenues to disperse information now much more than there was 50 years ago. You don't have to get on the CBS oh, yes. evening news to get your ideas out. But it's still, <laughs> people listen to certain things and they don't listen to others. And they tend not to listen to the more technically based, scientifically based talks because those are hard to understand. And unfortunately, that's what we need, yeah. how we need to be communicating because that's how we really get that across. So if you can dress that up and make it more personal, understandable, and palatable, palatable that's a good word, then that's probably what needs to be done. Because it really is sad to see some of what goes, you know, by the name of science out there as a scientist. It just makes you mad because you're not hearing it from scientists. It really is a frustrating thing, particularly when, you know, science is not a belief system per se. What separates science from a belief system are two words, prove it. And yet what people are <laughs> are conveying out there is basically a kind of ideas that they'd like to be true, but they can't prove them, but they're going to call them science anyway. And so they make belief system type arguments about them. You know, and one of the classics right now is most scientists believe, well, I didn't know the laws of physics were determined by a popular vote. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the way the world's going. Yeah. That's <laughs> the only thing that makes that statement mean anything in a scientific sense. And yet you hear it all the time with people with very somber views on their face or, you know, well, I'm sorry, that doesn't mean anything. Unless we get to vote on the laws of physics, it means nothing. I hear you. So I suppose there's a couple of things that I should take away from that, actually, because one is about making the industry more palatable. But it's also, you know, just what strikes me about speaking to you, Monty, is that you are a scientist. And it just shows the way that we've got to show the energy industry is all the different types of careers you can have in the energy industry. So I'll be honest, I don't speak to a million scientists in my everyday life because I speak to 
you know, managers or IT professionals, especially where I am. But I also, you know, they can be in the downstream area. They can be a finance person because they're sitting in the, the trading arm of the industry. So it really is a broad church, in my opinion. So there's got to be a ways not only of the industry becoming more part of the solution, not part of the problem, and just showing people that you can do so much. That's personally my opinion. But I think that there's still work to be done. So I think we're almost about to wrap up, but I do have one more question, if I may, Monty. And that's more around just where do you think things are going to go next in the industry? What do you think is going to be the next big thing? Is there something you're working on that you think might be the area that might be might pop or just in general? You know, is this I, an I, investment sort of classification now? <laughs> that's right. Neil's asking you, Monty, where should he place his money? That's what he's asking you. And, that's right. And, that's right. And which company should I put my money in? Right. No, no, genuinely more just trends, I think. I think the message should be that there's a lot left to do. And it requires, though, a careful integration of science and engineering at a level that we've never really done as an industry. And I'll be frank, at a major company, there's a no man's land between science and engineering. The reason it's there is to keep people from fighting, you know. And so if you can wander into that terrain between those two things, it's going, hey, what about this and how does it fit with this? There's tremendous opportunities left to find oil and gas, produce oil and gas in the United States, in the lower 48, in reservoirs that have drilled, been drilled through hundreds or thousands of times, you know, and the data's there. It doesn't take a lot of effort to get it. So in 10 years, yeah, it'll be surprising, I think, where the industry is. But we'll have to okay, great. get the work done. That sounds fantastic. Well, unless you've got anything else, Monte or Jason, uh, I want to say maybe we wrap up. I've learned one thing for sure from today, which is it's great to be in a bar now and again where you can bump into great, fantastic people like Monty Hoffman and just sit and strike up a great conversation and realize all the stuff and know that you've got to get them on the podcast because thank you, Monty. That was honestly just super insightful and so delighted that we got a chance to get you on because it's just a fantastic perspective. You know, the other one I wanted to offer as well, Monty, because it was really cool to get maybe when we're doing some with university students or Neil and I talking to Western Uni, etc. Maybe we can get you on and give a real view to the, you know, almost do a live podcast with some of the students. I'd love to offer that, Monty, if you were willing to come on and, you know, and give your, you know, your years experience and really your experience in the industry. I think that would be immensely sort of yeah, popular with the guys. I'd be glad to help out any way I can. I believe in this industry. I think it has a tremendous future. I think it has a real value to the world. You go back and look at some of the economic improvement in people's lives versus when we started using fossil fuels. There's a tremendous correlation. When we started burning coal, you know, only one out of every 20 people in the world knew where their next meal was coming from. And now we're down to one out of 20 not knowing where their next meal is coming from. So that's a tremendous improvement. from, And we're a big part of that. And we need to keep at it because there's still 5% of the world that doesn't know where their next meal is coming from. Yeah. So that's... Another point we didn't really cover on the podcast was we need to look for more diverse, more female leaders, 
and really get different views into this industry to maximize. I mean, talking about Mrs. Hoffman, joking apart, we do need to bring the right skills and the right demographics into this industry because it has been predominantly white male. That's something that we definitely need to work on, which I know you're totally support as well. Well, actually, it's Miss Powell. She did not take my last name when we got married. Oh. So. <laughs> so my wife also didn't Monty. So, yep, we're, yep. And, you know, a tremendous... Sorry, Miss Powell. But she's tremendous, you know, talent. And, you know, when I... In 1988, we moved to Houston, Texas and integrated basically a Gulf oil company office with a Chevron office. But the office had been a Gulf office. And it was white, it was male, and it was mostly from Texas. It had a very limited viewpoint of the world. We had a very good friend, Frank Primus, who was an African-American petroleum engineer in Denver with Chevron. And he was not a happy camper down there in Houston. He really was disappointed. That said, when I walked into the Exxon campus this time around, it was an entirely different world than 50 years ago. Yep. So, That's true. Absolutely. So that is one bit of progress, and I think so, it's necessary. So just a second. Just too many Scotsmen in this industry, though, Monty. That's the only problem. <laughs> it's only too many Scotsmen in this industry, That's Monty. Right. That's right. We're not that diverse on this call, are we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. I think that's been great. I think, honestly, what a great time I've had. Really enjoyed it. We will definitely try and get you back on, Monty, and we will find a way to get you in with some of the college students. I think they need to hear you and the first lady to talk through some of your experience. So I think that'd be great. Okay. Thanks, guys. And we'll put some of the Stafford exploration into the notes as well. Okay. All right. Thanks all, okay. everyone. Have a good one, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Cheers, Monty. Cheers, Neil. Cheers. Join us again next week on the Energy Workforce of Tomorrow podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.